Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild card! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, July 13th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. Joining me today, my financial partner in crime, certified financial podcaster and certified financial planner, Matt Frankel, CFP. There you go. You like that, Matt, don't you? I do. How are you doing today? I'm all right. I'm all right, man. It's a, you know, it's a new week and I'm excited because I get to travel down uh, to Georgia later uh, this week to go see my mom and dad. Haven't seen them in a while. I get to play a little golf with my dad and uh, enjoy a couple of days off, you know, unwind a little bit. It's been, been a, it's kind of a stressful year for some. Yeah, a little bit. I finally got out of town <laughs> this weekend. It was the first time I didn't sleep in my own house in you know since February. Yeah, um, and, and how, felt, how did you feel about that? It felt weird at first, but I got to give a shout out. I was at um at the uh, Harris Cherokee Casino in North Carolina. It's up in the mountains. Really cool place to stay in the middle of nowhere in the mountains. And I was nervous at first, and they really did a fantastic job of making people feel safe and comfortable. I, I didn't see anybody without a mask on or even given a hard time. Um, we've all seen the Facebook and, and uh, Twitter videos of somebody throwing a fit in a store for being asked <laughs> to wear a mask, and we just didn't see that. Um, That's good. Yeah, I mean, the, the cleanliness was just off the charts. There were, you know, guys in giant, like, backpack, like, yard sprayers with disinfectant, like, hosing down things as soon as people got up. You weren't allowed to sit in a chair until someone had cleaned it and put a sticker on it. Um, it was just, it was very impressive, and everyone was just, like, Seemed honestly happy to be out. So I got to give a, a shout out to, to Caesars, the parent company of, of, of Harris Cherokee, to, for really taking the COVID precautions seriously and making everyone feel safe and comfortable and getting me out of my house for a weekend. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's really good to hear. I mean, that is something where, uh, I'm sure this will, it'll be different in different pockets of the country, but it's, it's nice to see him taking it so seriously. And it, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, really, it's just, it's up to all of us to, you know, do what we can. And so it sounds like a lot of people there were doing what they could and that, that makes it for a more enjoyable experience for everyone. Uh, and speaking of enjoyable experiences, Matt, I mean, I think today's podcast is going to be second to none because we're talking about a company that hasn't even gone public yet. We're getting this thing on the radar early. Um, On today's financial show, folks, we're going to jump into uh, rocket companies. Now, if you're not familiar with rocket companies, my bet is you are familiar with Rocket Mortgage or Quicken Loans. That's what this is. Rocket Companies recently filed as S1 to go public. Um, And as I mentioned, you probably know this for Rocket Mortgage. That's their flagship product. Uh, Matt, you know, we, we all know, I mean, housing, how important housing is to our economy, the opportunities it presents from building to lending to home improvement, uh, giving consumers the ability to spend. Uh, I mean, I, I have to say, I was pretty excited to see this filing and, and having worked in the lending industry before, I mean, you just know how powerful it is and you know how big of a market is and, and the opportunity that exists there. So let's just start out first. Tell us a little bit about what Rocket Companies does. Well, they are the world, the, not the world, they're the U.S. Um, mar- market leader in mortgage originations. They have they have a, a little over 9% of the mortgage market, which doesn't sound like a ton, but like you mentioned, this is a huge, huge space. Um, the, just to kind of give you an example or a, a statistic, in 2019, there were $2.2 trillion of mortgages originated in the United States. So a 10% share, that's pretty big. Yeah. Um, so they are, the, they're, 
they make money from mortgage originations. They also have um, a servicing operation. They, they don't actually own the mortgages. We'll get into that in a little bit. They have a servicing operation. They have a small uh, personal lending business. They have a small auto lending business. But at the core of it, they're really a mortgage originator. And they, they are really trying to take advantage of the inefficiencies in the traditional mortgage market. If anyone's applied for a mortgage, it's not a quick process. <laughs> um, I mean, it I, is not. I did my first one, I think, through Wells Fargo. I did one through um, a bank called Iberia in South Florida. Um, and it was a, it's a complicated process. And especially if, you, if your lender has not yet figured out how to leverage technology to their advantage. Um, you know, the, the document processing could be really inefficient. The information requests that just the whole process was very inefficient. So Rocket wants to make the most kind of seamless, most user friendly, most, you know, a mortgage process that doesn't make you pull your hair out along the way, which um, like you're a homeowner. You, you know, you know all too well how that is. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it's and uh, they've been successful so far. They they've their consumer satisfaction scores are off the charts. Their app has almost a perfect rating in the Apple App Store. Um, they're, they're doing a great job of it. And like you said, they've boosted the quick... Since Rocket Mortgage was originated or uh, was rolled out, um, over the past 10 years, Quicken's mortgage um, market share has gone from 1.3% to 9.2%. That's a huge growth rate. That's almost a 19% annualized growth rate. So it's they've really been successful in revolutionizing a, a highly inefficient and fragmented industry. Yeah. I mean, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head there and in, in, inefficient. I mean, that is whether you're even, whether you're buying a home or, or even refinancing um, or, or, I mean, if you're, you're trying to open up a home equity line of credit or something, I mean, it, it is just, it, it is a seemingly endless uh, request for paperwork and pay stubs and documentation and I mean, the only thing that really keeps you going at it is, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel and you really, you really need to get to that point. But, but it, it does feel like going through the process, you just, you see all of these opportunities for it to be better. And it certainly does feel like the company itself is working to do that. I mean, they, they have a number of businesses that exist well beyond just Rocket Mortgage too. I mean, there's, there's Amrock and Rock Home, Rocket Homes and Core Digital Media and Rocket Loans and whatnot. But you know, when you look at the actual performance of this business compared to its competitors, I saw this in the S1. It's in 2019, we closed 6.7 loans per month per average production team member compared to the industry average of 2.3, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. So that's significant on its own. Now, they also said in 2020, as of now, year to date, that average has grown to 8.3 loans per month. So they're clearly doing more seemingly with less. And, and I mean, yeah, from an investor's perspective, you have to like that, I think. Yeah. And that's just kind of what I was, what I was mentioning about really leveraging technology to your advantage. Um, the average mortgage lender does not use technology nearly as much as Rocket does, which yeah. makes the, the process take longer. It, now, to be fair, the 2020 number, you've seen a surge of refinancings, right? Interest rates have plunged to you know record lows. Refinancings are going through the roof. And refinances, they, they generally are a, more, a quicker form of mortgage than a, a purchase. Um, you know, it, it's, there's lighter documentation requirements. The people already own the home. So it, it's usually easier to document what you need to document and get the loan through the process. So that that could be the what explains the 2020 jump in numbers. 
Um, but, you know, 6.7 versus 2.3 per team member, that's a huge difference. And it really shows you, you know, the power of streamlining the process. And that's, like you said, from an investor's point of view, that's really a nice thing to see. Yeah, it really is. And, and uh, you know, talking a little bit about how they make their money, you know, you, you mentioned that they typically sell most of those loans off in, in the in the servicing market, which is, is yeah, that's that's obviously something that happens quite a bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the first question that really comes to mind is how do they make their money? And it sounds like they make their money mostly just from the origination of the loans, right? Right. Every time you get a mortgage, there's some sort of origination fee attached to it. Think like $1,000 or so. Um, and this is just a fee charged by the lender for, you know, putting your, you know, the process of originating your mortgage. As you said, they're the average team member. Rocket's one of the most efficient companies. And the average team member can get through, you know, 6.7 of these per month. So the origination fee is what pays those people and, and is the, the profit margin for Rocket Mortgage. Um, they also, um, they sell the mortgages into the secondary market, meaning to like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you know, those type of uh, agencies and get paid for that. I mean, you're selling the mortgage means that the other party is buying the mortgage. Um, so they get a little bit of revenue from that. And there's some other, you know, they have a, like I mentioned, they have a servicing business um, where they, you know, servicing means that they, you know, collect payments from borrowers and make sure the owner of the mortgage gets paid. So they get a little bit of revenue from that. They have, you know, real estate referrals. They have, I mentioned, they also have a, an auto business. They have a personal lending business. These are all small compared to the origination business, but they're, they have a pretty diverse revenue stream. Um, origination is their bread and butter. So that's really, so when you're looking at Rocket Mortgage as an investment, I mean, obviously we don't know how much the shares are going to cost yet. Uh, but when you're looking at it as a business, focus on the origination business because that's really the bread and butter of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that you're right. That is a big business. I mean, when you look at um, the year ended 2019, um, they, they originated $145 billion in mortgages. And in 91% of those were actually sold to government backed entities. I mean, that's that, that's that, uh, selling that mortgage off. But I mean, you figure those government backed entities, I mean, that, that's, that's something they're, they're used to doing, buying those loans. And you would imagine that they probably want to buy loans that, uh, a little bit more reliable than not. So, um, I mean, that certainly gives, uh, that gives Rocket, I think, the incentive to keep on um, writing good business. And you know, you mentioned something, and I wanted to talk a little bit about this. Um, the shares, you know, we're not going to know what the shares price at when they go public. Um, we can look at some of the numbers at least, and, and get an idea of what kind of money the company makes. It does look like at the end of the year, 2019, they brought in 5.1 billion dollars in revenue. And, and net income of $893.8 million. So, I mean, it sounds like at least this is a business that would go public and it's going to be, it's going to be a business that, I mean, it should be profitable from the get-go, I would imagine. Yeah. So if they made, if their net income last year was, you know, almost $900 million based on, let's just say, a, you know, price to earnings of 20 um, or, or thereabouts, you're, you're looking at almost a twenty a twenty billion dollar valuation for this company. Um, is is my guess on what it would what it would trade at if it were to go public tomorrow, um, just based on that net income number. But um, no, that, I mean they're they're definitely a profitable company. They're efficient. They um, mortgage lending, especially just if you're just an originator, is usually not a very high margin business. 
But like you said, their, their average employee is about three times as efficient as the industry average when it comes to mortgages originated per month. So that has translated into some nice profitability from this, these numbers. Yeah. Now, in, in regard to the actual shares going public, I was kind of uh, taken back a little bit by this at first, but I mean, I guess it's not really that surprising. I mean, this is a company that you know, founder Dan Gilbert, who has, um, you know, he's he's been the one that really has, has spearheaded this company from the start, and he and he's going to remain really the one in control here. There are going to be four classes of shares. Now, there's not going to be four classes of shares that go public. I mean, there are going to be A shares. I believe this the IPO is going to bring the A shares to the market. Um, but there, I mean, there's class A, B, C, and D shares. And, and you know, at the end of the day, this is still going to keep power and control of the company firmly in, in Mr. Gilbert's hands. He'll have you know 79% of the vote. Um, what you know? What talk a little bit about this? This extensive of a share class structure is. The, what are the what are the advantages? What are the what are the disadvantages of something? Is is that something that gives you pause? Well, anytime you have more than one class, the usual reason for it is to give a certain party voting power. Um, so there, it's kind of a weird class structure. Like you mentioned, there's A, B, C, and D. Class A and C each have one vote per share in company matters. Class B and D each have 10 votes per share. So that's not an uncommon thing. Uh, we call those the super voting shares. But the weird part is that class A and B shares have economic rights, meaning that if, you know, if the company pays a dividend, um, they would get, uh, get the dividend. If the company were to sell, they would get a share of the, the money. Um, class C and D have no economic rights. So really, they are just voting power. It's, it's, it's kind of the weird thing that I see. And um, the thing, the big sentence that in the S1 that really stands out to me is under, it says there will be no shares of class B common stock and no shares of class C common stock outstanding after the IPO. So that means the only ones that would exist are class A, which has one vote and economic rights, meaning it's just normal common stock, and class D, which has 10 votes per share and no economic rights, meaning that just gives, gives people voting power. Um, and that's that's Dan Gilbert's shares. Um, it, it, that's the, the super voting shares go to insiders. It's basically it's um, the same thing you see from like Facebook. Um, yeah, that's how Mark Zuckerberg has you know total control. He has super voting shares. Um, same with like like Zillow has a dual dual uh, share structure. One has voting rights, one doesn't. Yeah, I think uh, Under Under Armour has uh, that same. Yeah, uh, Google Alphabet well. that has, yep. has the same thing. Um, and a lot of times the super voting shares aren't available to the public. Those examples, Google, Under Armour, they all sell their both both classes to the public. Um, like in Alphabet's example, the the GOOGL is the the share with voting rights, and they usually sell for a few dollars more per share than the, the ones without voting rights. But in these in this case, you won't be able to buy the super voting shares. It's kind of the point. Um, you know, the insiders control those. They're not willing to sell them to you. Um, so if you want voting rights and you if you want your vote to count because stock, public stocks are not always a democracy um, your vote doesn't always count um you know if, if you buy a share of facebook you have a vote but mark zuckerberg's vote counts more than you so it's not a democracy um and rocket companies is not going to be a democracy so it, it, take that into consideration if that matters to you. It should. It doesn't really matter to most retail investors, but yeah, if it does. yeah. I mean, that is something. I mean, I 
earlier in my investing life, I think I probably would have viewed it a little bit differently. But you're right. I mean, it, it really, it's not a democracy. And you, you would like to think that maybe your vote counts. But at the end of the day, really, you know, based on the structure of the business, you're going to be along for the ride. And so you're either okay with that or you're not. But, you know, we get questions from listeners and from, from members all the time in regard to share class structure. Should I buy the A or the B shares of whatever given company? And, you know, oftentimes early on, there will be somewhat of a spread, right? There will be a disparity in the pricing where, you know, the market might be assigning a higher valuation to the stock, to the share class with the vote versus the share class without the vote, even though they represent the same economic interest. And, and I've always, I've always just felt on the side, I mean, I, I'm not going to pay up for that vote. Like if, if I have a choice, if there's a big disparity there, I'm not going to pay up for that vote because ultimately the vote doesn't mean anything. It's, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I don't mean to sound that you know straightforward about it, but it really is true. I mean, you've got an owner who's going to basically take the company in whatever direction you know they want to go. So you know, every every investor has to to come up with their own way of looking at it. But really, I mean, what's the point of paying for that vote if that vote doesn't matter? Right. Well, and and in a case like this, when it's a uh, you know the the just look at the company's track record since it's 1995 founding. Um, I I don't mind having the, the <laughs> having yeah. the insiders totally in control. There's I a trust track that, record. <laughs> I trust their vote more than I trust mine. Um, you know, yeah. Same with same with like a Facebook. I trust I trust Mark Zuckerberg's vote more than I would trust my own. I mean, I you can't really agree. argue. With, look at the price that Facebook went public at, and look where it is now. I really can't argue with how well they, that he's monetized the site. And, I I don't really want to tell him what to do. No, no. I mean, I I'd imagine he knows that business better than we do, and I'm okay with that. Right. There. I mean, there's a lot of you know, like, um, like say, like AT and T or something like that, where nobody has the the majority vote. Like, you know, the, the public's vote can count. It's usually it's generally the 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 funds that own it that really have the most pull. But you know, it's not the it, the point is it's not the it's the shareholders actually making the decisions, not the the leadership. Um, but in, in this case, it's going to be the leadership making the decisions, not the shareholders. So it's just a matter of how comfortable you are with that as an investor. But, you know, a 19% growth rate in market share over the past decade, I mean, that's hard to argue with. Yeah. And when we talk about large and growing market opportunities, I mean, this is certainly one of them. Um, I wanted to get your quick take on the use of the proceeds. I think whenever you see an S1 filed, it's always helpful to, and, and you know, they have this in the in the table of contents, so to speak there. I mean, they, they need to list out the use of the proceeds. And oftentimes, the use of the proceeds is to go towards um, growing the business, capital expenditures, whatever it may be. It seems like here that the use of proceeds, a little bit of a different um, a little bit of a different setup here. Can you talk a little bit about what the use of proceeds well, here will be? Because it's I a actually little bit did, confusing. Actually, do you mind? Re- I just lost that. It's worth pointing out to our listeners that this S one filing is three thousand one hundred seventy eight pages long. Yeah, it's a big one. But, <laughs> yeah, and if I read this off, I mean, I will read it so that so I lost that it when I was it. looking at the share structure. <laughs> and, and yeah, it's it's you know I slacked you that one blurb earlier. Um, where they say, we intend to use the entire aggregate amount of the net proceeds from this offering to acquire a number of holdings units and corresponding shares of Class D common stock from RHI, which is Rock Holdings, equal to the amount of such net proceeds divided by the price paid by the underwriters for shares of our Class A common stock in this offering. Um, so, I mean, it ultimately, it, it doesn't, it sounds like this is going to be money that is used to, to ultimately solidify 
the ownership structure of the company as opposed to being money that they're going to be um, putting to use in growing the business necessarily. Was that your impression? Yeah, I found it, by the way. It was right under the page I was looking at. Um, out of the three thousand whatever pages, um, that's the <laughs> yeah. longest. This is the longest financial document I've ever seen. By the it, by the way, yeah, yeah. Um, Thank God no, for the um, internet, right? Generally, when companies go public, there's one of two ways they can do it. Um, you see what's an IPO, which is what this is going to be, um, and then you can see a direct listing, which means they're just listing the existing shares. Um, usually, an IPO is done when the company wants to raise capital. Um, Whereas a direct listing, uh, Slack went public with a direct listing not long ago. Uh, Spotify is another example. Those companies went use that route because they didn't need to raise capital. It sounds like Rocket doesn't need to raise capital, but they're trying to get capital to, to essentially do some financial engineering with the share structure. Um, they, they, it, but the, the key takeaway is they're not raising capital for the business. Usually you'd see a note that we would we're using the amount of the proceeds for blah, 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 and for general corporate purposes, which means that they're raising capital. Um, so you don't, you're not seeing that here. It's not like they need this for, you know, working capital for the business. They don't need to go public, in other words. So Yeah, yeah, that's what it struck me as too. I mean, this is, you know, the, the business has really already got its, its legs underneath it and been, been doing a lot of great stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I think if we, if we pivot away from the business side of things and, and look at the culture side of things, it, you can you can understand at least a little bit why I think it's really interesting in the in the S one they have you know they have a page devoted to culture and what they call their isms their ISMs and and that's not an acronym it's it's not ISM it's their isms and and it's a list of nineteen things it's ultimately these are the ideals they live by that drive the culture of the business. And I mean, nineteen things here. I mean, I think I think that's pretty uh, pretty encouraging to see. But then you you look through those isms and you understand the ideals here. I mean, you know, I I think it's it's I'm at least encouraged to see a company with such a focus on culture um, with their own way of of looking at things. The isms, for example. I mean, that's <laughs> that seems kind of foolish in my book. Capital F foolish, right? I mean, we do those same kinds of things with our culture. Uh, you know, you develop a culture that's unique to your particular business, to your particular uh, situation here. And I think that I think that uh, Rocket Companies has, has done that. Two. I mean, one of the isms there is always raising their level of awareness. Another one is every second counts. Another one, <laughs> a penny saved is a penny. Uh, but my favorite, <laughs> and this is maybe the dog lover in me coming out, 16, we eat our own dog food. Um, you know, it seems like just another way of just saying they kind of, uh, they're doing what they say they're going to do. They're going to, they're going to, you know, eat their own cooking, so to speak. Yeah, this definitely seems like a foolish company. Um, in well, I mean, just one one thing that stands out to me about them is, you know, they were J.D. Power's number one rank for mortgage servicing um, client service for the past 10 years in a row. Yeah. Um, and, and it's actually, you know, in full disclosure, Rocket Mortgage is actually a sponsor of this podcast not long ago. Um, they've been a sponsor of ours in the past, and it's probably because they we share a lot of the same ideals and they're, they're a very foolish mortgage originator, but I... I like the list of isms. I think that's a really cool touch. I think we need a list of isms. Well, maybe we could get cracking on that, and that we could help define these these next decades of the Motley Fool with some isms of our own. Maybe we'll we'll, we'll talk after we get done taping. A couple other a couple other ones that I really like. Seventeen. I you know I live my life. Simplicity is genius. I love it. And then eighteen. 
innovation is rewarded, execution is worshipped. And I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. That's a great rule for every investor to live by that one. I think that's my favorite out of them. Yeah. Um, you know, I, an idea is great. If you can't execute on it, then what do you got? So exactly. Um, you know, it, it, it's that kind of goes along with what I said before that you know a great product doesn't necessarily make a great business. If you have a great idea for a product, that's fantastic. People are going to buy it. But if if you can't make it work as a business, you're never going to make any money off of it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a few of those that I mention all the time, and I get a lot of flack for them. So I'm not going to say them again. <laughs> Um, all the, all the the companies that I think are great products, but not great businesses that, you know, the stock keeps going up and 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 up. Um, I think you know what I'm talking about. I do. I think I do. Um, <laughs> but we're not going to get into that on this show. That sounds like it'd be better for something like a Thursday, maybe. Um, you know, Matt, I want to ask you in regard to rocket mortgage. I mean, obviously the housing market and financing mortgage and all that stuff. I mean, are, are banks the main competitors here? I mean, is, is, is rocket mortgage, is that their main competitor, like a Wells Fargo or a JP Morgan? Yeah, their competitors are definitely other originators. It's worth mentioning that uh, rocket doesn't own its mortgages. Um, it's not a, a buy and hold lender. So there's no credit risk involved. So it, I'd say, and the reason I mentioned that is because some of the other lenders that you see retain some of their mortgages as investments. Um, you know, if you look at like Wells Fargo's loan portfolio, I believe there's some mortgages on it. Uh, if you look at some of these other big banks, they own some of their mortgages. Um, you know, the, the, if you make a what's called a conforming mortgage, which is under a certain amount of principal, you can sell it to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac if it meets certain guidelines. If you originate what's called a jumbo mortgage, you can't do that. Um, so you could either sell it to a third party investor or retain it on your balance sheet, just to name one example. So they they compete with them in the in the origination business. They don't compete with them in the sense of they don't own any of their mortgages. They're purely an originator servicer. Um, so a lot of these other companies like um, Axos Financial, a company we've talked about a lot on this show, I know owns a ton of its jumbo mortgages um, and and you know collects the interest payments themselves. And um, if a, if a borrower defaults on the loan, they lose money. Um, so it's a different dynamic than some of the banks, but most banks do have big lending, big origination operations. So in that sense, they're competitors. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, the, you know, it goes without saying that when you're an originator, you're selling that loan off to a, uh, typically it sounds like really here, a government-backed entity. Um, I mean, that takes a lot of risk, you know, off your balance sheet as well. So you're not stuck holding that um, stuck holding that bag if, if we, you know, run into, you know, when we run into the next financial crisis, so to speak. And I think that's uh, always something worth keeping in mind. I mean, it, it reminds me a little bit um, of, of like your Visa or MasterCard, you know, they, they, they see a lot of money flow through that network. They're not really on the, on the hook for any of the debt, but they get a nice little service charge for making that business work and facilitating the deals. Uh, Rocket seems to be kind of that same sort of, uh, sort of business model, I, I think. Um, well, Matt, I mean, at the end of the day, is this a business you feel like you're, you're going to be interested in, in uh, considering for you know, your portfolio or for the service? I mean, I, I, obviously we want to wait and let the company go public and, and learn a little bit more about how they report and how they behave as a publicly traded company. But I mean, it, it seems to have a lot of the uh, qualities that, w that we certainly look for in, in uh, good, foolish investment, don't you think? 
Sure. Well, I mean, to be clear, we don't know when it's going public. We don't know at what price it's going to go public. We don't know the, the ticker symbol yet, I don't believe. We do actually. Oh, I will we do. say it's, okay. it's going to trade on the New York Stock Exchange. The ticker is going to be RKT. Okay, there you go. Well, yeah. someone had, um, so, but we don't know when, we don't know how much. Those are the two things that we don't know just yet. Um, and we won't find out how much till, you know, a day or two beforehand. So I love the business. I love the leadership. My fear is that it's going to be one of those IPOs that, you know, doubles the day of the IPO and becomes really too expensive. Um, like think of a lemonade IPO that we just saw. Yeah, yeah. I, I could see, I could see something like that happen with um, with uh, Rocket, uh, just because it's it's uh, such an anticipated IPO. It's fintech IPOs have, have especially profitable ones, yeah. have have really you know soared. So I'm worried about it more from a valuation standpoint. I'd love to be able to get in on the IPO, but I mean, you know, let's be honest, it usually doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. um, so, but no, I love the business. I like that they don't take credit risk. I like that they're purely an originator. I think it's a great business, especially in a low interest environment. Um, so I'm I'm just curious as to the valuation. That's really going to be the question for me. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good point. We do see a lot of times that, you know, that big pop that just it, it fades away over time. And, and you know, if, if they happen to report a bad quarter or, you know, throw out some questionable guidance, then the market really, really gives it back. But, uh, yeah, I, I generally thinking I'm with you. I mean, I feel like this is a large, large market opportunity. It's one that I understand. It's it's one that I think should remain uh, large and growing for some time. So, um, hey, I'm all for I'm all for making a system like this more efficient. It sounds like that's what rocket companies is set set to do. And it sounds like they have the opportunity to go even really beyond housing. So we'll, we'll see how that shakes out, but we will keep an eye out for that IPO. And uh, Matt, I appreciate you joining this, uh, this week and talking more about this upcoming IPO and, and giving us your thoughts. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Hopefully um, see you again in a couple of weeks and you have safe travels. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks so much. And that's going to do it for us this week, folks. Remember, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MF Industry Focus. You can drop us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. Let us know what you think about Rocket Company's impending IPO, because it sounds like it's going to be a big one. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Tim Sparks, so thanks for making it happen, Tim. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.